Thank you, everybody, for uh, coming on uh, Friday in Vegas because you have nothing better to do but to listen to non-opioid analgesics and adjuvants. Um, it's probably one of the boring, one of the probably boringest titles that this wasn't even our original title that we actually submitted, but I'm surprised we actually got this turnout. So we're happy. So hopefully, after we're done in this hour or a little less than an hour or so, that you'll take away some clinical pearls that you'll be able to use in your practice. So Levi and I, um, we have no disclosures, not making any money yet. And then the learning objectives are there for your review, but we won't spend time going through those. So the big, you know, big thing is opioid epidemic, opioid epidemic, and it, it was living hell to figure out what are you going to do with these patients where you have these, you have these arbitrary quantity limits that insurance says, okay, you're only going to get this much. And then you've got to figure out what are you going to do with your patients because they're still hurting. Um, so when we look at pain while we're here, we have a very high prevalence of chronic pain in the United States, about 30%, uh, which is more than the top three leading causes of uh, morbidity, uh, cancer, heart disease, and diabetes combined. So in terms of significance, obviously, uh, it's a big disease, covers a lot of patients. And when we look at pain, we have to look at a couple different pains. It's not just the physical pain, but we know pain is a physical and an emotional experience. And especially the chronic pain patients, we've sort of been led astray on a couple of cases where you feed into the patient presentation, they're having horrible pain. Our initial response is to help um, soothe the patient and to address the pain. But with chronic pain patients, there's more of a concern with the emotional, the spiritual suffering. Maybe they're getting bad news. They realize they have metastatic cancer. Um, and so a lot of that feeds into what we call total pain syndrome. And so it's really important to have those conversations with patients to separate the physical sensation they're having from the emotional and the spiritual uh, so that we can guide treatment uh, and to avoid some negative sequelae. I think it's important here, um, especially on the inpatient world, if you guys are doing inpatient stuff, um, you'll see it all the time, addict, addiction, drug-seeking behavior. And it's really a big thing of understanding the difference between addiction, pseudo-addiction, and dependence. And really, if you don't have that understanding and some person just puts addicts, I mean, that thing follows that patient throughout and, and really can be very detrimental to them. So really having a clear understanding of the definitions of dependence, whether it's the psychological or physical, and addiction versus pseudo-addiction. And pseudo-addiction, a lot of the times, will present just like addicts, but it's, un it's under-treated pain. And in their heads, the only thing that's going to work is that IV. So it's, it's really spending the time educating your patient and then educating the system of the difference between the addiction and the pseudo-addiction, I think, is very key here. And one other thing I wanted to point out on that slide, if you walk away with one thing from this talk, walk away with the fact of the non-opiates and the adjuvant therapy, for chronic pain, if we don't address depression, anxiety, and sleep disorder, it doesn't matter how much medication you give your patient, you're never going to reach the goal um, in terms of outcomes. So it's important that we look at all those adjunctive medications and get the right med on the patient for the right reason. Apparently we have nothing to disclose again. Um, so some more of the learning objectives here. And um, we'll, we'll, this is going to, it's kind of a hodgepodge of different pieces and different tools that we use within our practice. And hopefully that you'll be able to take away 
some things that you can actually uh, use in your clinical practice. So uh, I'm trained in physical medicine rehab, then I went on to do fellowship in palliative medicine. And the big thing I always said is just, you know, all my years in medical school, all my years of residency, I didn't really fully understand how to talk and communicate to a patient until I understood um, how to approach, how to communicate, and through my palliative training. And I think the Ready model, which is from the Cleveland Clinic, is, is a nice um, kind of overview of our system and what we're really lacking. Really, our system, all medical training, it's, hey, the development before the establishment, where what's the chief complaint, what's the HPI, what's the meds, what's, but you've forgotten the whole first part of establishing a relationship. So if you haven't established the relationship and you figured out where the patient is, figuring out what, what they're suffering from, figuring out who they are, keeping it open and figuring out how to listen, 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 listen. Um, and you gotta meet the patient where they are. That's, that's really important. And so, sitting on their level I think is really helpful when we go and do a new consult. We'll sit down, it may take a half hour, it may take 45 minutes, but that time invested on the initial consult really saves a lot on the back end for follow-ups. Yeah, it's a, it, they've actually done studies where they've taken clinicians, ones that have had a seat versus ones that stand, and the ones that, that sit down, it's almost, that the patient's perception on the whole um, experience is almost double the time. So the first thing I'm doing as soon as I'm in a room is find a seat and, and, and really just kind of in figuring out where the patient's at, who they are, and how we can best help them. So it's open-ended questions to allow them to get off what they're, what, what, what they're suffering from because our systems kind of plug and chug, get them in and get them out, get them in and get them out. It doesn't mean that every patient's gonna take an hour or five hours or anything like that. You'll, as you master the craft and as you do it more, you can spend minutes only with the patient, but they've, you've made them feel like you spent hours because you're the first person that sat down. You're the first person that's actually allowed them to, to open up. So the five levels of listening, um, you know, you think about all our training, you think about even when we were yay big, has anyone ever taught you how to listen? It's not mom, just say, listen! You know, it's kind of stepping back for a second and you know we, we talk about empathy but do we understand what to empathize with a patient is and to empathize with a patient of all these levels of listening is to put your to put yourself in their shoes that's that's to empathize and that's the only level of listening where you're actually in their shoes and it's not your perspective and when you master that then it's it's kind of what I say is game over you figured out who the patient is they figured out that you're actually there, that you care, and the rest of it just kind of, and you start having these miraculous outcomes and you've got more business than you even know what to do with. When we look at principles uh, for managing chronic pain, the American Pain Society put out these five steps. We're gonna go through them in a little bit more detail, but just to list them out, identify and understand the cause of pain. If we understand the cause, we can fix it versus putting Band-Aid or prescribing pain medicine on top. Uh, determine the patient's goal. It's so important before we treat a patient to understand what their goals of treatment are and how we can work to fit those. Select an appropriate medication regimen based off the presenting symptoms and establish a monitoring plan and optimize the patient's regimen and non, all the non-opiate agents that we're gonna use. So when we talk about patient's goals, it's not just a treatment goal. I wanna get my pain score down to a zero. Um, it's about what are their functional goals? When you look at what is the DEA looking at in terms of your notes, 
and what outcomes we're looking for, it's all functional based. And so looking at the patient's level of ability, is it a grandparent that wants to spend time with their grandchild? Is it someone that's trying to get through the workday? Um, looking at those specific outcomes of a function. And then also asking the patient, what do you expect from treatment? And if a patient tells me, I want a pain score of zero, I want no pain, and I say, well, I'd like to give you that, but in terms of risk and benefit, that's not possible. If we achieve it, that's wonderful, but our goal should be something more conservative, maybe a three or four out of 10. And when you ask someone, that numeric score is zero to 10, it's so subjective, it's different for each person. And so I try and give sort of a description of what that means for the patient. So when we say a three, if you look at the Mankowski pain scale, it's a zero to 10, but it adds an objective measure of what that means for a patient, sort of as a baseline, and then it helps direct treatment. And so I explain to a patient a three or four, basically you know you have pain, but you can be distracted for 30 minutes either by watching TV or reading a magazine. When I tell patients that suffer from chronic cancer pain, this is a goal, they say, absolutely, if you can give me that, I'm very happy. So again, it's putting some objective measure to what that number means. Also, we gotta look at the characteristics. So again, what is the cause of the pain? Can we fix that or take it away? Looking at pathophysiology and physiology to figure out what's working, what's not working. What other modalities can we prescribe for the patient other than pharmacotherapy, other than drugs? Uh, taking into account, is this acute, acute on chronic, or is it a chronic condition that's gonna affect what medications we use? And then more importantly, is this a nociceptive pain or is it neuropathic? Because a lot of those medications don't cover both. So um, from my rehab training, really this has been ingrained in, in us. That I honestly, in a day, ask what a patient's pain score is zero times a day, zero. And I, and I will say we have the best outcomes in all pain management. There's not a pain that we don't figure out because we meet from the beginning, we meet the patient where they're at. But then we objectify and we say, what are your goals? And a lot of the times, if you can't move, get in and out of that bed, on and off a toilet, do household distances, it's pretty hard to live life. And a lot of the patient population we do see are you know, the chronic cancer kind of pain. And when, we, when we're able to objectify and, and look at, you know, are you able to get some good rest? Are you able to get out of that bed and move? Are you able, and, and then what is your quality of sleep? That is so huge. And, it's so, and, and I cannot, um, you know, you think about where the time we're actually healing is during our sleep time. So if you're not getting proper sleep-wake cycle, it's, this is very basic stuff. It makes us look like, you know, we're re, Jesus reincarnated sometimes when we come in there and we go, well, you haven't been sleeping, you know, sprinkle a little bit of melatonin or a little bit of tizanidine or something like that, and then they wake up and they're like a new person. Because I tell patients quite often, if we don't get your sleep-wake cycle regulated, it doesn't matter how much pain medicine I give you, we're just throwing meds at you. You think about you sleep deprived yourself, how you feel after the day. So your whole system is, is that homeostasis is completely gone. And just to add to that too, in the inpatient side, we may be more amped to use medications with sleep. On the outpatient clinic side, it's all focused about sleep hygiene. You know, are they shutting the TV off an hour before bed? Do they have a TV in the bedroom? Are they using the bedroom for sleep or procreation? Are they getting up during the day, not taking naps, those type of things? So we talk to patients about the non-drug therapies also. And lastly, always in all my patients, you know, it's kind of the moving, the eating, the sleeping, and then the pooping. And poop is a big, big, big deal. I mean, you know, if, you, if, if you're not pooping and, and getting all that waste product out of you, 
it's, it's, it's really hard to kind of live life. The other thing is a lot of patients that we see, even when they have weeks or months of life left, they may have very poor oral intake. But one thing I learned from one of my mentors, general surgeon, that a lot of our stool is just waste product that needs to go. So even though they say they haven't eaten a lot, you still should achieve, try to get them their bowels moved every third day at least. So here, you know, breaking the pain cycle is, t is stepping back for a second and saying, did we get the right drug or not? You know, and, and that's the, the, the you know, you teach young residents, med students, pharmacy students, whoever it may be, you have to understand what the, those pain generators are. And then it becomes very simple. So understanding what they've used, what they haven't used, and just because they've used it at one time in 1954 does not mean it's not going to be valuable now because the body is a dynamic thing. We change by 7% every single day. So in theory, you're made up of a whole, composed of a whole new person in two weeks. So because it didn't work a couple months ago or a couple years ago doesn't mean it's not going to work at this present moment. And sometimes you might have not gotten the right dose. It might have, um, so just because it hadn't worked doesn't mean it's not going to work at this time. And then trying to make, for us, it's when we're talking opioids, it's what their oral morphine equivalence or their MME is. That's what I want to know. So if you can streamline, put them on one medication, it becomes a lot cleaner for you to figure out, am I on the right track? Am I not on the right track? And then being able to tailor it. Now you've got two different opioids. You're just making yourself, you're making life for yourself a lot more difficult. So I'm always trying to make it make life and, and control as many factors as I can and, and streamlining the meds is one portion of it. And then lastly here, it's kind of the basics of optimizing the non-opioids as well and we'll go into a little bit more. The one thing in some of these patients with uh, advanced dementia um, that they may not be able to even ask for the medications or even realize that that they should be asking for their medication. So sometimes I'll, I'll have an order of, you know, Q4, off, uh, patient may refuse, you know. So understanding that what, pa what patient population and having the right order is very, very key here. So when we look at all the different medications, there's a quite a large number of meds to go through. And so I just want to provide more of a high-level sort of review. When we think about what meds we use, we think about the mechanism of pain, how that medication works. So going through, this is the nociceptive process. We look at transduction. This is where you have tissue damage. You have the inflammatory mediators come out. You have your action potential. So this is the site of action for acetaminophen on substance P, the NSAIDs with the prostaglandins along with your steroids. Then you get your action potential, so anticonvulsants like carbamazepine or local anesthetics will exert an effect in the periphery. Transmission, your spinal thalamic tract neuron, so this is where a predominance of opiate receptors in the CNS are located. So all your opiates are going to have an effect here, along with this with substance P, a central mechanism for acetaminophen and baclofen. Then looking at modulation, this is that feedback arc, and pretty much any antidepressant that's going to have an effect is going to affect serotonin or norepinephrine. And you may remember from pharmacology, the norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors have more an effect on neuropathic pain. So that will include your TCAs and your SNRIs. Um, and this is sort of a nice chart I make for our students to sort of separate out nociceptive treatment versus neuropathic. Um, when you look at nociceptive, you've got the somatic uh, nociceptive, which is more your connective tissue 
versus your visceral, which is more of the hollowed organ type of pain. <clears throat> the medications are listed below. One thing to point out with the visceral type of pain, patients actually may have a hallmark that include autonomic or dysonomic symptoms uh, when they present, so nausea, vomiting, hypotension, bradycardia, and sweating. When you look at pain, we have to look at chronicity. So is this acute pain versus chronic? And we do a lot of chronic pain management. And one thing we tell our patients on trying to figure out the best regimen to use is the longer that you use a traditional opiate, there's no end to that. Meaning with time, tolerance will develop and you have to continue to increase that opiate dose to have the same analgesic effect. And so this is where, in a lot of our chronic pain, we use methadone. Also, you have to worry about the side effects. So long-term use of opiates can lead to sex hormone dysfunction, osteoporosis. And then also, if you have escalation of doses that are too rapid, opiate-induced hyperalgesia can be a problem. So, and, and looking at chronicity of pain and other aberrant behaviors, you also have to understand when is it important to get a consult service to come look at the patient. So there may be an addictionologist, maybe a physiatrist, maybe interventional procedures from anesthesia. So now we're getting into a little bit more of what I'd say the meat and potatoes of the lecture to um, you know some tidbits that, that we use in our practice quite often and has been beneficial um, for a lot of our patients. But I say you cannot treat pain, especially you cannot treat chronic pain without owning anxiety, depression, insomnia. If you don't own it, you're not going to do a good job because if you're, you're allowing somebody else to own it, then you have that one other factor that you can't control. And what I said in the beginning, sleep-wake cycle is so, so key here. Um, you know, we're in the opioid epidemic, but that benzo epidemic is right behind it. And it's, it's here. It's here and it's happening. And you know, already the black box warning that we'll talk about in a little further in the talk. But that as, I'm, I'm more concerned, actually. I'm less concerned about the opioids. I know I'll be able to reset them and figure out some other things. But I'm more concerned about how am I going to get them off the opioids and using alternatives um, for those, which we'll probably have on another slide, probably the buspirone and the lanzapine. So the buspirone, which is nice, is that it doesn't have that sedating type side effect. I usually start at five milligrams TID. A lanzapine, now when they're in the acute hospital, it's pretty miraculous, just at 2.5 QHS. The one thing when you start using some antidopaminergic type drugs, and you gotta worry about more of the, the extrapyramidal side effects, akathisia and things like that. So something to be aware of, you probably <clears throat> wanna stay away from and your movement disorder patients and whatnot. And also with olanzapine specifically too, you don't want to titrate that dose too quickly because you can get locked in syndrome as well. The um, other piece um, here, you know, if you've got neuropathic pain, this is pretty basic. Everyone probably in this room knows that I'm always looking for adjuncts. And can I hit multiple birds with one stone and using an SNRI? Um, now usually if there's no pain, an SSRI would be uh, more appropriate. And then the TCAs for sleep-wake disturbance and pain, uh, you know, even those have their, their limiting side effects as well. When you look at, this is the new black box warning uh, that was placed in all benzodiazepine and opiates. This is related, there's a tenfold increase in the opiate-related adverse effects and a threefold increase in death rate and EC admissions uh, related to concurrent use of benzodiazepines. That was from the DONS network uh, study, and so the FDA had placed this box. And so this is really a mainstay of our practice, is that patients are not permitted to have both a benzodiazepine with an opiate, and it's really pretty much best practice standard. 
Um, if someone is benzodependent, obviously you can't just stop that medicine. You have to wean them off. Uh, many times we'll utilize, as it said on the last slide, a longer acting like clonazepam versus like a shorter acting like al alprazolam where you get this high peak and trough that's highly frequency during the day. It makes it a little bit easier in sort of minimizing those side effects. So now we're talking more in the depression uh, side of it. One drug that we use a lot is mirtazapine, 7.5 milligrams QHS is what I start at. And usually, remember, we're trying to re-regulate sleep-wake cycle, so it's nice is that it's got this uh, sedation side effect of it, which is nice at nighttime. Once you go up to 15 milligrams, it's got more sedation side effect, but once you get over 15 milligrams, then you don't have that sedatory side effect, so it's something to be aware of. It will also help with appetite stimulation and also um, very um, effective in uh, anxiety, plus a lot of the nausea related to, because if, if you're anxious and you're a cancer patient, you're probably going to be nauseous on top of it. It's hard not to be nauseous when you're anxious. And we've been, um, mirtazapine has been very, very effective for that. We talked a little bit about the SNRIs, um, the venlafaxine and deloxetine, if we're, uh, we've got a neuropathic component plus depression. Um, I've used a lot of the venlafaxine even with our methadone patients. Even though the methadone is one of our most potent of our neuropathic agents, I've found that adding on a little bit of the uh, venlafaxine has actually been uh, helpful, and I've actually been able to wean our, some of our patients um, off of uh, the methadone, and they're just on venlafaxine now. Um, and then you've got your TCAs here, your nortripline, disipramine. Probably nortripline is probably the one I go to if I'm going to use. Amitriptyline, I never use. There's just too many anticholinergic side effects, and, you know, and we talked about pooping being very important. If you don't want your patients to poop, give them some amitriptyline. Um, and then lastly here, um, bupropion, and we usually will layer this onto another SSRI or SNRI when they've got that kind of refractory type of depression. And then now we're talking insomnia, how are you going to get patients to sleep? So start very, very basic with melatonin. I start at nine milligrams straight away. Three milligrams, I just don't see a whole lot of effect. Some patients get away with three milligrams, but when you're in the acute hospital, you're getting nine milligrams. Um, if you've got muscle spasms and you're, you're, and you're just tight, uh, a little bit of tizanidine, four milligrams at nighttime is very, very effective. You can titrate it up to eight milligrams at nighttime. One thing you need to be cautious of because it's an alpha two, it can drop your blood pressure. But if you're in pain, probably blood pressures are usually pretty okay. So something to be aware of, though. Um, and then you've got patients that are having trouble sleeping that have, in, in the setting of a traumatic brain injury, um, trazodone is our mainstay and go-to starting at 55.0 milligrams at nighttime, and you can titrate that up pretty high. Um, I've seen doses of 200, 300. But when I get to those kind of doses and I start thinking to myself, is this really the best drug for them? Um, and then lastly, uh, I, I can count on this hand how many times I've used the ones on the bottom. Uh, I, I, there are some exceptions where, like I said, in my palliative population, um, I'm not always about reinventing the wheel, so to say, you know, if things have worked for them. But now if I reset, say, their pain, and I'm using methadone with them and whatnot. So 
a lot of these cancer patients or palliative patients are just so anxious all the time and worried because the pain, pain, pain. But you help them with the pain, usually the sleep-wake cycle will, will help as well. So I, I really generally try to stay away from these uh, sedative hypnotics. All right, so uh, having a slide on acetaminophen and some NSAIDs, of course, we'd be remiss not to have that. <clears throat> uh, for chronic use, acetaminophen oral, really try and limit the dose, no more than two grams per day. Um, obviously, call attention to liver function, making sure there's no issues with that or chronic alcohol consumption. In terms of IV acetaminophen or Ofremev, um, the maximum dose per day is four grams. Um, where we see really a role, I think there's a lot of articles talking about pharmacoeconomics and is there the cost and benefit of the product. Really our role is central pain syndrome, so like headache after stroke. We've seen some really remarkable benefits. Um, but overall, pharmacoeconomic outcomes, I've looked at research data from one dose versus four doses post-op, and other than getting maybe a higher concentration with IV on the first dose, which we still don't know if that clinically correlates to better outcomes, I've not seen significant data in supporting its use prolonged after surgery. And it's usually a hot topic in hospital formularies. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Um, NSAIDs, so we understand prostaglandin in, uh, synthesis inhibition, really great uh, agents for muscular skeletal pain. Um, but unfortunately, we have a lot of risks associated with NSAIDs. So GI toxicity, ulceration, perforation, cardiovascular toxicity, we'll talk a little bit more about. Renal insufficiency, its effect on decreasing GFR, especially when combined with other medications of a chart for. And then also worrying about as a patient on other anticoagulants or are they on a medication like an SSRI that may, or SNRI that may increase bleeding risk. So here we got this class uh, of other medications. I talked about uh, decreasing GFR, so an NSAID with an ACE inhibitor, you're affecting the afferent and efferent arterioles and the glomerulus, so you're going to significantly drop your GFR. So here's the most common drug classes that we, we look at, and this is more for your reference. When I talked about cardiac toxicity, um, there's a recent FDA warning about the increased cardiovascular uh, and MI risk associated with NSAID use in as little as one week in healthy adult patients. So these patients do not have to have cardiovascular risks um, diagnosed or risk equivalents. Um, what you need to know as a provider, tell your patients what are the signs and symptoms of a heart attack or a stroke so they can seek medical treatment as quickly as possible. But also whenever you are going to use an NSAID, make sure it's your patient that's relatively healthy, that doesn't have those risk factors. Use the lowest dose possible for the shortest duration possible. And just as a, as a reminder, we think about when you ask someone what are our neuropathic agents, everyone's going to say gabapentin and pregabalin. But I think sometimes we, we forget um, SNRIs are very prominent, duloxetine, venlafaxine, obviously tricyclic antidepressants, anything with a norepinephrine reuptake inhibition. But we have opiates that have an effect with neuropathic pain. Our most potent is methadone, levorphanols right there next to it, tapentadol, and fentanyl to a lesser extent. Now I want to go through a sort of audience participation, matching up the drug class with possible or serious adverse effects. So we'll start off with the first one, um, SSRIs. Anyone want to yell out what letter that is? This isn't common, more rare, but if it occurs, it could be a problem. Let me say, I heard D, yes. So SIADH. What about tricyclic antidepressants? Exactly, so the anticholinergic effects. So dry mouth, like I'm having right now, urinary retention, and constipation. 
Hey, what about do what? I said, are you constipated? Maybe a little bit. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> uh, what about COX-2 inhibitors? A, exactly. So cardiovascular arrest, heart attack, stroke. Gabapentin. Or we'll just say gabaergic. So I B, learned, the I six learned this S's. one the hard way. I learned this, the, the suicidal ideation. And one of my, vet, my veterans, uh, it was, he had uh, PTSD, and then he also ended, I started him on a bunch of GABA, and then he ended up in the streets wanting to kill himself. And, I said, and then I never forgot that gabapentin can increase that suicidal ideation. So it's something to be very, very, it's not such a benign drug. We're just, just throwing it out because it's, it's the next drug that, of abuse as well. Yeah. And our last one, by default, ketamine is going to be E. So agitation, worsening of baseline psychosis or psychotic issues, hallucinations because of the dissociative properties, if you're giving that high of a dose. We'll talk about that in a minute. Tachycardia and anxiety. So speaking of ketamine, sort of just doing a 101 kind of review. So this is that fincyclidine-like uh, non-competitive NMDA receptor antagonist. Uh, it's a wonderful agent uh, for a lot of our institutions. It's probably a drug relegated to anesthesia and restricted in who can prescribe it, restricted in some states by law who can actually administer the drug. Uh, basically, doses ranging 1 to 4 milligrams per kilogram uh, is the general anesthetic dose for general anesthesia. Contraindications is really what I want to pull your attention to. So if you do use ketamine and some different therapies we'll talk about, it's important to understand when not to use this agent. So a patient that's got an active psychosis or a history of psychiatric issues, like schizophrenia, where that dissociation can cause more problems, um, epilepsy or history of seizures, hypertension that's not controlled if they're tachycardic or anxious, uh, cardiovascular disease, heart disease, heart failure, coronary artery disease, or if there is an increase in blood pressure or ICP that could be hazardous for the patient, like in traumatic brain injury. So what we use this agent for, and we're starting to use more of it, is sub-dissociative dose ketamine. And that's basically any application of this drug, given IV push, intranasal, or IM, that's less than one milligram per kilogram of ideal body weight. So potential benefits or populations we'd like to use this more in would be those patients predominantly with a history of addiction that say, you know, I don't care how bad the pain is, I don't want another opiate. This is a perfect agent to try and break their pain acutely. Also patients that are hypersensitive to other treatments or have failed the standard of therapy, which is your traditional opiates at regular doses, or maybe they have received opiates and you've escalated the dose and the patient's not responding well. So here's the SDDK dosing. So for IV, it's 0.1 to 0.3 milligram per kilogram based off of ideal body weight. Typically, a max dose would be 30 milligrams. Intranasal and IM are about the same dose. Um, they got pediatrics in there. It's typically a one-time IV push injection, which could be repeated in 15 to 30 minutes based off a response. And what we've done with a patient, we asked them, what music do you find relaxing? In our institution, it's got to be physician-administered if you're not in anesthesia. So what we'll do is we'll administer the dose, we'll lower the lights, we'll play music, and try and help the patient relax and help break the acute pain cycle. And it's been pretty phenomenal. Um, concurrent medication considerations, if they are getting opiates, you want to make sure you cut the dose of the opiate so you're not getting too much of a good thing going on. Adverse effects is going to be the same as your contraindications, so just being aware of that. And then the taste abnormality is just going to be with the intranasal uh, administration. 
Now, when we talk about continuous infusion ketamine, you probably heard a little bit more about that, and there's a lot more publications coming out about retreat, uh, treating refractory psychiatric conditions, refractory depression. Um, but also, we have a lot of data on using it for uh, low-dose infusion for treating chronic pain or pain that's refractory. So in our institution, we do allow it for patients that have failed opiate rotations that are still having complex, um, difficult pain, severe neuropathic pain with allodynia, um, or if they're having any other kind of opiate-tolerant-related issues. The dose is the same, 0.1 to 0.3, mix per kg ideal body weight, but it's a continuous infusion. Um, and then we could give a loading dose. Most of the time we don't. Um, but then if you're giving opiates, you cut the dose in half. And many times you have to co-administer a benzodiazepine to help mitigate uh, some of the psychosomatic or uh, psychomimetic effects of the ketamine. So we'll transition a little bit into um, medicinal marijuana. So kind of we covered our anxiety, depression, our sleep-wake cycle, went on to a little bit of hodgepodge of ketamine, and now going on to medicinal marijuana. So really, I want to draw your attention to um, this slide specifically. When the, People are always teaching that THC is a psychoactive component, and the non-THC cannabinoid system is the non-psychoactive component. But you look here, THC and hits the CB1 receptor, which will give you that psychoactive component. But there, there's also CB1 receptors all throughout your CNS. So it's doing a whole lot more than just getting you high. Okay, so something to, to take home with you because a lot of this new stuff of CBD only, well, it might not be as effective as you once, once thought because really, as you kind of start looking and digging in deeper, THC actually may be the potentiator. So back in the days, that's all we learned, and how many, you know, through your, your training, you learned anything about the endocannabinoid system. All we learned was THC, bad, get you high, munchies, making, you know, within an hour or two, and it works for nausea, and it might work. And that's basically what we've learned through all our training. And you've got to dig, and you've got to kind of really, and I think as the climate has completely changed now. I mean, patients are demanding now. You know, this is, you know, even just five years ago, it's completely changed now. So you need to be, I say this is a great opportunity to continue to educate yourself. So there's one book that uh, is called Breaking the Opioid Epidemic with Use of uh, THC. Um, and the endocannabinoid system is a really, really complex system. And what I theorize is kind of your homeostatic kind of system throughout that, that regulates your other neurotransmitters because it's, it's one of the only systems to actually have this retrograde signaling. So because of retrograde signaling in the endocannabinoid system, it actually has effects on other neurotransmitters. So this is what I was talking about on the first slide. You see the THC here in the dark circle is hitting so many other receptors besides just that euphoria receptor. And it can actually mitigate an inflammatory response and in doing those things. So I think this is really what I want to illustrate here is it's a very complex system. We're pretty far behind and kind of, you know, the whole reefer madness really set us back some. But I think now there's, there's awareness. And like anything in, in, in medicine, people 
will come up with the newest, greatest, this is going to you know, cure your cancer. This is going to, and this is what we're kind of faced with because every single day the patients are coming and say, well, what about marijuana? And what about marijuana? So getting yourself educated and understanding. So here at the chemo types and kind of moving away from industry, well, there we go, Sonar, the Sativa, Indica, and what I like to think about are your chemotypes, chemotypes one, two, and three. Your chemotypes one are usually more THC, higher THC, lower CBD. When we get to the chemotypes two, we're talking the THC, CBD relationship's pretty even, and then chemotypes three, more CBD and less THC. So understanding what the patient's priorities, then you'll be able to then kind of figure out which of the strands that they may use. I think that's pretty helpful than walking into a dispensary and asking some person that has no medical background to say, okay, which one is going to help me with this and this and this. So having an understanding of what your receptors you're actually trying to hit and then making it more scientific and hopefully over time we'll get more research that this is going to evolve. We'll talk a little bit about dronabinol. I, I personally don't ever, I mean, rarely will prescribe it just because it's got such a high THC component. And for a lot of my elderly patients, it just gets them, I mean, it sends them to a different world and they just don't like that feeling. So I really try to stay away from, I rarely will use it um, because of that THC component. And then just to highlight here, the chemotype one, you see dronabinol or marinol as an example in the green box. Chemotype two, um, Cetavex, we'll talk about that a little bit later, a newer product that's on the market. And then Epidulax at the bottom, chemotype receptor three. So this is the breaking the cycle of opioid addiction, supplement your pain management with cannabis. The book actually just came out. It's actually a nice, it's a nice easy read. It's got some great information. So here, I guess I just jumped the gun a little bit early. Uh, so Dronabinol, yes, Marinol. Um, so we know that's been on the market for a while. It's improved for anti-emetic effects for chemotherapy and appetite stimulation. Uh, but one of the problems we see with it, a little bit too much THC causing some CNS effects. So excess sedation. Um, the next one, uh, Sustamet, which is Nibelone, is also an antiemetic CB1 receptor agonist um, and also has potential for CNS adverse effects. Specifically for that one was paranoia, um, problematic. And the newest one, which is uh, the cannabidiol, or CBD plant derivative, um, Epidulax, and this is a liquid that just received FDA approval. It's a pure plant derivative uh, CBD approved and was given um, a, a DESI drug status the, uh, due to epilepsy. So the two very rare, uncommon refractory types of epilepsy, uh, the Lenox, get, what is that, Lenox? Gesto syndrome. Gesto syndrome. I always have Merck. trouble pronouncing that. And then Drovet syndrome. <laughs> And then next, we've got a couple products that are not available in the U.S., but are on the European market. Uh, so the one on the top left, uh, Nexabel, a set of X, uh, approved in 21 countries. Um, what's interesting here is that it's approved as an anti-emetic, but they're seeking FDA approval for the treatment of cancer-related pain. So none of the previous other preparations have sought that approval. Um, and then another one, uh, Anna Basum. Uh, this is an oral endocannabinoid mimetic agent, so synthetic CB2 receptor. And what they're looking at treating is systemic cirrhosis and also cystic fibrosis. But all the treatments so far for those two issues, it's an autoimmune issue, so immunosuppressants. So this would be the first novel approach of treating without using an immunosuppressant. So there's actual ac activity 
um, on the activated immune cells, where this new synthetic uh, cannabinoid would effectively treat those two disease processes. So that also has an orphan drug status, and it was given a fast-track approval process by the FDA. So we should hear something about that in the near future. All right. Um, so how are we going to monitor and figure out what we're doing? Working? Not working? Um, if you've got the luxury of seeing these patients more often, especially when they become more problematic for you, it's going to set you up for a whole lot less heartache from your MA calling you because that person's blowing up the phone and coming to your office and just keeping kind of the tabs on the people that are the biggest troublemakers. I mean, the ones that are, anyways. Um, so, so just in 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 kind of when I when kind of treat teaching my MAs and they're like, oh, I've got horrific pain. It's just again, it's and asking, how are they sleeping? How are they pooping? How are they moving? And making sure that you've addressed the anxiety, depression component of it, because otherwise you're just throwing meds at them. Um, and then for our regulatory, and really, I didn't realize how important it was until our first meeting four years ago when we came here and started listening to some of the regulatory stuff, and you're like, holy smokes, I'm going to end up in jail if I don't do some of these crazy things. But these are the things that can just be templated out very easy for you and just make it systematic. If you don't have a systematic approach, you will be burnt. So the sooner you have that systematic approach, and that was the utility of getting a pharmacist, because pharmacists are very systematic. Doctors are just everywhere. And the, but the nice thing about bringing the pharmacist into it was they're all about those checks and balances. And that's why really pairing yourself with a pharmacist, if you can, if you're treating chronic pain, it's almost a must, and you'll, you'll have that much better results. And, and then the adherence and pill counts and doing all those things where um, they have to be done. They have to be done. So it's one of those things that we can't just complain and cry about it. It's just figuring out how to make it most efficient for you. And I think bringing up the topic of having a systems process for your service is so important. We've heard other medical legal consult uh, speakers during the conference this year talk about you need to have an algorithm for your service. When do you test your drug screens? How do you make it random? And making sure that every patient follows that algorithm, however you develop that, but that you customize it and you have the ability to customize it. The pill counts, the PDMP is all very important. We've been very lucky. Our system has been able to implement the PDMP within our electronic medical records, so that's been very helpful in speeding that process up but also our state allows delegated authority for your medical assistant or mid-levels to also check that during the visit so the physician's not tied up and having to look directly at that. And then do you want to comment a little bit more on the urine drug screen and making sure, because I think reiterating, making sure you have the right urine drug screen for the right drug that you're looking for. Right. It seems very basic, but if you don't do that, you can get into a whole lot of trouble. So. There's going to be a lot of people like, oh, we got this new greatest thing and try to sell you, but then you don't even have the right test for the right medication that you're trying to detect. So just being aware of that. And don't just depend on your system if you work for a health system. Our hospital uses a different technology um, that doesn't look at quantitative outcomes, so we can't look at how much metabolites and parent compounds are in the urine, which 
We need that kind of information for different patient case scenarios. Not every single time, but having that ability is very important in trying to diagnose if a patient's not responding to a drug, maybe we have a metabolism issue. Are they taking something else that's not showing up or is showing up as a metabolite? So it's really important to look at that. So we've got another five, five minutes or so, and um, are there, uh, we went through a lot of stuff. So are there any specific questions? Yep. So, yeah, that's a great, it's a great question. So the question is, how do you recommend what type of marijuana and whatnot? Yes, sir. I didn't say that I was recommending anything right now. I said what the question was. So let me. I said my patients right now are demanding it right now, so that I have to have a response to them. Some of them have months of life left, and I'm going to figure out something that's going to work for them. So the, back to the question was, the question was, what am I going to recommend? So you've got to figure out, first of all, what you're trying to treat. What population are you treating? My response is right now, we don't have the scientific literature right now because it's still Schedule One, and that it's run by big industry right now. So that's, that's the big issue. Now I've got a cancer patient that's got months of life left. <clears throat> I talk to my other cancer patients and figure out what dispensary they go to, what products they, they use, whether it's more musculoskeletal for their sarcomas, whether it's, so it's figuring, and you're using your network of patients that have had some benefit. And it's, it is kind of, the, the unfortunate thing is it's still Schedule One right now. So we don't have the scientific background, and I do educate my patients that we don't have the scientific background and whatnot to say I can prescribe this and this and this and say you should take this much and this much. The point of my, the CBD and the THC portion of it was you can go on Amazon and they'll drop two, three hundred bucks on CBD things, and then they'll say this is crap. Why did you tell me to go buy it? So the point of the, the comment of the THC and the CBD was CBD alone may not be the answer to all of chronic pain. That was the point. Any other questions? Yeah, and it's legal, you know, it's not Schedule 1, less than 0.001% THT, it's okay. But these, this, is, this is an inevitable thing. Give us another 5, 10 years, we'll, we'll, THC will no longer, we'll actually have the appropriate research and we'll have and make it medical and make it so I can say I need this percent CBD, I need this percent THC for this problem. Another thing too, I think it's going to make that more difficult, the DEA announced that they're going to reschedule CBDs as a controlled substance as well. So that, that's also going to be complicating <laughs> of do we have supplies of CBDs and what does that look like and who's going to manufacture that or is it going to be available? So. Any other questions? Yeah. The opiate dose. Okay, that's yeah. Just out of precaution, what we did notice though in the patients that we gave subdissociative dose IV push ketamine, it was a very slow push. Um, is a, a number of our patients were using relatively not a crazy amount of opiates, maybe some Norco and Tramadol. 
Um, one of the patients actually went 48 hours before requiring another opiate-type substance to treat pain. So we've had pretty phenomenal effect in breaking the acute pain. You know, and we wouldn't jump to using ketamine in a typical patient, but there's issues in that patient specifically about addiction and misuse, and so we're trying to find an alternative. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. yeah. I think you, you mentioned tizanidine, but what role um, do you have for other, <coughs> this broad and varied group of skeletal muscle relaxants? So are you talking like Robaxins, the Flexrols, the... So, I, like I said, I try to use adjuncts. So that's the reason I use the Xanaflex, is that because it has the, or the Tizanidine, because it has the sedation side effect plus the muscle, basically the antispasmodic portion of it as well. Um, in our practice, so say we probably use less of the Flexerols, Robaxins, and those guys. And if I can, and if they've got good up. blood pressure, good LFTs, they'll probably tend towards more of the Xanaflex. You guys are ready to escape. Do you have a question over here? Thank you. I'm sorry. IV lidocaine. Uh, at that, we're actually working on expanding that in our health system. So it's going under our PNT approval. So we haven't been able to use that yet. But I know that we're going to be using it as part of our ERAS process, early recovery from anesthesia. Um, now that's still going to be limited to the anesthesia provider, so not part of our service. Uh, but I think eventually we'll be interested in looking at some of that. A lot more interesting things coming up in the pipeline.